Welcome to Focus on Success with Fazia Costi. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here is your host, Fazia Costi. Welcome to the show. This is Fazia Costi, and today I have two wonderful guests for you, Dr. Sarah Bald, who is our regular um, wonderful psychologist who's going to be talking about an amazing topic today, um, special needs, and we're going to talk to an educator, a parent, and an advocate and get her perspective, and her name is Laura Passmore. So welcome, Laura and Laura and uh, and Sarah. Welcome to the show. Sarah, would you like to start and talk a little bit about your background first? Yeah. So my name is Dr. Sarah Bald. I'm a clinical psychologist. So I specialize in pediatric neuropsychology. So I evaluate kids and really people across the lifespan. I had a 52-year-old in my office the other day, but mostly kids. Um from three years old and up where we talk and we look at developmental delays, ADHD, learning disabilities, and I'm looking at their individual strengths and weaknesses. So I own Nest Psychological and we have speech pathology and therapists and neuropsychologists. And so we are, we are practicing and we're in, we're in the Phoenix area. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. And Laura, could you talk a little bit about what you do and, and, and how you got to be this wonderful educator and an advocate for special needs? Hi. Yes. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I am, I, I, ha- I wear many hats, I guess, like most of us do. But for me, the experience that has led me to advocacy has been based on my experience in education for decades. I was a gen ed teacher. I was a special education teacher, a special ed director. Um, I was a compliance coordinator, and, and I was actually involved with some long-term subbing. I, I needed to stay in a resource room that had a lot of impact, and I'll tell that story later. I couldn't believe what was actually happening, and it motivated me to shift into advocacy because I realized that there are a lot of parents who don't know what they don't know, no matter how well educated they are and how much they love their children more than anyone in the world. uh, They don't know what they don't know about the educational process in the public schools and how to navigate it to best meet their children's needs. I think that is true for even professionals, everybody. I've been in the field for many, many years, I'd say over 30, and I'm still learning new things. And just when I think I know something, somebody comes up to me and says, oh, did you know about this? And it's like, well, let me write that one down because I need to research that. And it's amazing to me, you know, just when I think I know a lot, I don't. (laughs) Even in our field, we're we're trained in the the disability side, but when it comes to the special education, it's always changing. You know, I did my internship in a school, so I knew the school system, but then things change. And since I've been there, it's been four or five years since I've been there. And it's a different world than it was just a few years ago. So it's constantly changing and, and psychologists don't know very well the special education side either. Well, well, I, well, it, <laughs> it, I always feel like I need to know just enough to refer out. <laughs> uh, and being resourceful, I think, is one of the things that experience has taught. That's for sure. sure. But it's, it's interesting just to see with the different guidelines that change even within the state, you know, at state and local levels with education, there's still some overarching 
federal guidelines that drive what's happening with the kids. And not everybody in the public school system is trained on that either. So it's about collaborating and bringing all the information together with the child at the center. Uh, absolutely. T- tell us a little bit more about your story. Um, you know, tell us about the events that have brought you to this point where, because you're a parent of a special education, uh, of, a, of a child who needs special education, you've been in the field of education, you're an advocate. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to this point where you're at today. Okay, sure. Well, as, as I said, I've had some experience in education. I'm, I'm old <laughs> and I've seen a lot of changes in education. That's for sure. Uh, and, and what I've realized is that as a parent now, it's interesting because as I always thought as a teacher that every parent should have been a teacher to understand what's going on in the classroom. And then when I became a parent, I realized <laughs> that that works in reverse as well. And so for me, what I found is that each of my children, despite their genetic similarities, are very different from each other. They each have their roadmap. Each of them have different needs. And then you you know, magnify that in a classroom setting. And, and that's certainly the teacher's experience if they're aware of the differences and the uniqueness and the strengths. What I found was after teaching for a while and going into the, the more administrative role where I was training teachers on how to meet the needs of others, uh, of their students, the diverse needs, I then started being asked by friends because we were getting that old level. A friend who was a principal said, will you please come and cover this resource room for us for two weeks because I was home with one of my babies. So, okay, fine. I will do two weeks. That's it. <laughs> and I got into that resource room setting And what I realized was I had junior high learners, seventh and eighth graders, who sometimes get a bad rap when I think their energy is something that can be contagious and change making and and beautiful and creative in many ways if it's um, embraced. Well, I had these kiddos who, when I spent time with them and worked through their goals after we figured out where they were, they weren't even in the same binder. Nobody knew. The aide was the only person who could guide me as to what each of these kids was working on. And it was February. So these kids hadn't been getting quality support. They're at a high profile school um, in the district where there was plenty of income. There were strong demographics with involved parents. What this teacher that had been, uh, she was, I think, hiding from, from being fired. She was out on FMLA to protect her position. What she had been doing was giving all the kids A's that she worked with in resource. So the parents were happy. So the parents were praising the children and the parents didn't have anything negative to say. What I found when I started working with them was those kids wanted to learn and the ones that were shut down were open with some caring and some coaxing and some confidence building. They too wanted to learn. No child wants to be unsuccessful. And at the end end of that week, the first week, Uh, We did a a highs and lows. You know, what were the highs and lows of the week for you? And what I found was that this beautiful young lady said, you checked my work. And I thought, my goodness, they haven't been doing anything in there and nobody knows. And so it, it, it broke my heart and infuriated me at the same time because here she was about to move on to high school and she was no better for her math skills than she was when she came in and it was February. So 
it, it really uh, struck, a, struck a chord for me because I also have a nephew, my godson, who is vibrant and smart and social and handsome and great with teamwork. And he was fitting that profile. He was a kiddo who had ADHD. Um, he was oftentimes encouraged to show more effort. When he was showing effort, he just, uh, you know, struggled with the focus piece. And it was often called will versus skill. He also had subsequent problems in math because of the multi-step processes. He got labeled as a kiddo who wasn't trying. And I watched him start to shut down. So when I saw this happening in this room and it made me think of my nephew, I thought, oh, my goodness, these parents have no idea and they need to have an idea. And that's what flipped the switch for me when I realized that the parents needed to know what was going on, what their rights were, and really have more awareness of the measurement process to see if your child's progressing or not, not just the traditional grades, who's got an A, who's got a B, and that outcome oh. you know, is supposed to determine how much they're learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, I, I'm, I was thinking about this teacher as, as you were talking about it, and I thought, why would a teacher not, you know, check a student's work? Why would they not uh, evaluate a student? Why would they only give A's? And the only thing that I can think of is that they were just so overwhelmed or they were completely incompetent. I mean, there was just, those are the only two options. I, I would think either one of yeah. those. And I, I don't know her personally. I, I wish her yeah, I well. I just feel bad for her because, you know, she's in a position where, she clearly wanted to keep her job, but she's not doing a service to these kids. That's it. But I feel like a lot of our special education instructors too are totally burnt out because they have guidelines and deadlines and they have someone who doesn't know what they do, breathing down their neck, telling them what to do every single day. I mean, my heart bled for my special education teacher in the on my internship because she was being told by someone who had no clue anything about special education about what she needed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's still kids and there's still these lives that are being influenced, no matter how burnt out you are, you know, there's still kids in your care. And then they end up with gaps in their learning and somebody else has to pick up the pieces and fix it. And that becomes expensive for the parents. It's expensive time-wise for the kids. And mm-hmm. it's just not a good situation to be in. So I'm really glad that you you picked up that um, that advocacy role. Um, where did you go from there? You know, did you start uh, working for families and helping them reach their goals, helping their children? I did. I did. I, I spoke with several people and told them what I was doing as I was forming my business. And um, I started talking with other colleagues of mine in different aspects of education, whether it was neuropsychs or talking with OTs or friends in speech, getting input, what they were seeing and telling them where I was wanting to take this. Only my model was one that I wanted to be different because since I could straddle that conference room table of an IEP meeting with uh, you know, wearing the hat as a parent, wearing the hat as a teacher, and now coming in as an advocate, I could speak to each of the roles and try to bring in some collaboration. What I found is that most people want to help kids. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just some don't know how. And what Sarah was speaking to earlier, 
I think there's a, there's a real need for training. And if the teachers aren't trained to properly meet the needs of the students with a vast array of unique learning styles, then it's going to ultimately impact the child. Is it that the teacher doesn't have a heart for teaching? No, it's that they may need more training typically. So uh, what I what I did was I spoke with many about wanting to kind of shift the delivery model that I was using, that I wanted to bring collaboration where we could all bridge the gap and understand, where the parents weren't overwhelmed by so much information sitting at the table and not knowing their options. And they could start to forge some communication with the teachers and also with the admins supporting the process. And I found that I was very humble and grateful to get compliments after some of the meetings saying, thank you. This is the first time we've really all worked together versus having a confrontational guns blazing session where once the advocate leaves or once, you know, the person coming in on that horrors leaves, that child and that parent still have to function successfully at that school. And it, there's just so much positive that can be done for the child if people start to communicate and work together versus, you know, decide who is to blame for it not going well. And so I found that model has been effective and I've been asked by some districts to present PDs to them, to teach them, how do you bridge that and communicate with parents? How do you remain in compliance? And how do you keep parents as your partners when you aren't properly trained? when you are doing your best, when that child is still struggling. And I think communication is is just such a vital part of that, that recipe. That's what I well, found to be. And true. the relationship is everything. You're talking about a kid's entire macro system. It's the parents, it's the school, it's advocates, it's the entire environment has to come together for the school. And if you come combative, Granted, I've had some situations where we need combative, but if you come combative, you're going to ruin that relationship and it's not going to do the student any good. It's not going to do the child any good and it's going to rupture communication with the family. So I've had a few clients that have come to me and they've said, you know, my child has an IEP or a 504 plan. So they've gone through the process and um, the teachers are not able to implement uh, whatever those accommodations are. Um, so in what situation would that be acceptable? In my opinion, it would not be acceptable, but I, I I think that teachers do get overwhelmed. I think they have too many students and I think that they need additional support to support these students with special needs. Would, would, would you agree with that? Would you disagree with that? I would agree with that. However, I think that there are other layers. I, I think that, yes, the training to come to teachers um, on effectively implementing the accommodations or modifications within an IEP or the accommodations within a 504, I think that training is a very important piece of the puzzle. The other side of it, though, is that it is not the child or the parent's fault if those accommodations are um not implemented because the teacher is overwhelmed and doesn't have time. If it's put in that document, if the team, which includes the parents, if the team agrees to put in uh, or to include certain accommodations and verbiage in either the 504 or the IEP, what IDEA states, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that's the overarching law that governs special education and protects the rights of, of children who need support. 
it says that services cannot be based on staffing issues, scheduling issues. It must be based on student need. And so the responsibility falls on the district to train the teachers properly, but it is not the child's fault. And it's not the parent's fault if the teacher doesn't have time. The teacher or the district must then make sure that they address the staffing issues, make sure they address the training issues, because now they're out of compliance. And that's the protection that is there for the child and their parent, that as it's written in the IEP with specific, concise verbiage, it must be implemented. So, so it- Laura, I have a question for you. So this has come across my desk many times mm-hmm. where a family will say, oh, it's in the IEP and they're telling me that they're trying. There's no pair. They can't find a paraprofessional. They can't find X, Y, and Z, but they're actively trying and there's a job listing. So they're in compliance. What does the family do in that situation where like the school's actively quote, unquote, nobody can see me. I forget quote, unquote, (laughs) actively trying to fulfill whatever need is missing, but, but they're really not it's they're still not providing that service that's in the IP so this child's minutes are falling further and further behind that was my question too so thank you Sarah for asking yeah. that. <laughs> and that's a good question because you can understand that challenge for the district if they're advertising for paras and they can't get a para but there there's the remedy for that is compensatory services the district is out of compliance if it's in the IEP and they're not delivering for example if you're looking at like a child with dyslexia, if they have, uh, you know, the provisions in their IEP for dyslexia specific methodology, right? That that's geared towards the processing needs of a dyslexic learner. And that's built into their IEP and they're supposed to have a special ed teacher who's trained in Barton or Linda Mood Bell or whatever the program is that's being used. And that teacher isn't, isn't there. They don't have a teacher filling that job or, they have a special ed teacher that's not trained and not delivering that dyslexia-specific support, well, then the child is owed compensatory services because the onus is on the district to provide this. And if they are experiencing some staffing issues or some shortages, that's, again, it's not the child's fault or the parent's fault. So the district still owes them all those minutes. They may have 1,200 minutes coming to them in the summer Maybe they're contracted out with a place that delivers the support one-on-one, but even though the district doesn't have it, they have to contract out and get it for that child. It's, so how does it, a parent follow through and get those services for their child? The, the, does the school offer it? Does the school say, oh, we owe you 1,200 minutes? <laughs> I've never heard a school do that. So I'm no. just curious, how does, this, how does a parent go about getting those, those needs met? And that's, that's a, that's a good question. So it's typically something that will come up in the meetings when I'm there, where we are requesting compensatory services and we do have to detail why, how many minutes were missed for how long. And then it's a request of the district to provide those compensatory services to remain in compliance. See when, when districts have students on an IEP, they're receiving additional funding on that child's head. And so not just the per student funding that's there for every gen ed, gen ed learner who's enrolled, but there's additional funding that comes based on the eligibility category if a child uh, shows that need after evaluation is done. If the district is out of compliance consistently and they cannot provide compensatory services, they cannot remedy a situation where the teachers aren't implementing accommodations, then the district's at risk of losing that funding. 
And so compliance really lights a fire underneath them to make sure they're doing right by the child. They're out of compliance with what the IEP says as a compliance tool, then it's it puts them at risk of losing, losing money. And I hate to talk about money and children in the same conversation, but it is a factor. Absolutely. What, what has been the most challenging part of your journey? What, what do you think is the most challenging thing that you have to deal with when working with children, whether it's with your family, advocating for someone else's family, or even working as an educator, working with special needs children? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I think what's been the most challenging for me has been, well, I guess there are two things that come to mind. One is setting strong boundaries so that I can sleep at night. Because when there's a situation where a child is really uh, not getting their needs met and hurting, it's very hard for me to turn my mind and heart off. Um, So it is passion work for me. I will say that the biggest challenge I've run into with my own son has been trying to educate him about the learning differences versus a deficiency, because I noticed the self-esteem hit that he's taken, even though he has a 128 IQ, but his executive functioning deficits, his, his inattention has, it's caused him to measure himself with what we use for simple outcomes, which are grades. And it doesn't measure the fact that he's worked for three days on a project and didn't turn it in on Monday because he forgot. So he only got 50% the next day. And the grades show that he's a child who's not very intelligent. And watching him start to believe that was very hard to combat because going by the grades-based outcome measures, he wasn't wanting to hear from me that there was anything uh, different from what he was seeing. So to try to navigate it with him and, you know, apply it, apply the accommodations basically in our home, because that's the way my mind works, whether it's with a whiteboard or an agenda or routine or alarms on his watch, uh, prompts, reminders, giving a lot of grace. Um, I could do that with love. And so could my husband. In the classroom setting, not everybody did. And so they didn't see him. They didn't see him and who he was past that at times. And so when I'm in the role as an advocate, it's very real to me that some of those teachers or staff members at the table, they don't see who that child really is because of the interference that impacts the outcomes and their own preconceived notions possibly. Um, So for me, if we can come to that table and start translating and the parents can learn and understand better from a really detailed report in eval like Dr. Bald will provide, helping them to understand what's will, what skill, right? That conversation, Absolutely. that helps the parents. And then at the table, if we can come together, it's a beautiful thing. When we can't, what I found is it's oftentimes ego or it's power. It's somebody at the table saying, nope, this is how we do it. He's going to fit in. That kid didn't have to do that. Why should he? Why should he get extra? And, and when there's an archaic mindset or, or an ego coming into play, I, I really struggle. Um, I really struggle with feeling good about that meeting as it ends if it's continual headbutting. There are times when I felt 
like, you know, don't force my hand. Like we're giving every opportunity moving forward. Let's do this. And when there's been a lot of resistance and the child will suffer, then there are next steps through the state with compliance. There are due process lawsuits with a special ed attorney. And I give so many warnings veiling it. I'm sure we don't want to take next steps. I'm sure we can work together. I bet you can keep that up with the great communication, right? Going, <laughs> come on, don't force my hand. But if you do, as Sarah said, there's a line. And when you mess with kids and kids are hurting and you have the power to improve their experience and help them to retain some self-esteem and feel some confidence and success, and you don't, then I've been accused of turning into an Italian bulldog before. And it doesn't <laughs> but there's a time and place. You don't hurt kids when you have the ability to help them. And that's been My- the hardest yeah my (laughs) little vulnerability here my worst presentation I've ever given was to a private school had a very classic archaic mindset and we were talking about sensory processing disorder and you have a kid with sensory processing disorder in your class and so they are very affected by the whistle when someone blows a whistle they cover their ears they melt down big reactions but if they blow the whistle, they're okay. So I was yeah. like, great, then they blow the whistle. But that's not fair. And I got very poor reviews on my, I had, I gave the worst lecture of all of us in the practice. I gave a lecture. Mine was the worst because I was teaching them how to meet kids at their needs. Mm-hmm. And that's just not fair. They didn't so want to. Little- <laughs> <laughs> oh, but the other kids want to blow the whistle too. I liken it to glasses and it helps many to understand where I say, you know, just because the the need is identified and I need glasses to access my vision. I don't have to ask for it once that needs identified and and I know what's going to help me get there. And it doesn't mean that every other person at that table now deserves glasses or needs them. They may not need them. They might need something else, but it's a concrete, tangible way to see that Fair is meeting everybody where they are. That's right. what's fair. Fair is I giving them what they need. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I the luxury of families is like, you don't talk a kid out of diabetes. So you're not going to talk them out of their ADHD. You're not going <laughs> to talk them out of their learning disability. Oh my gosh. I love it. You know, uh, we have to take a break in just a couple of minutes. So before we go to break, Sarah, would you like to let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you? Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Sarah Bald. I'm the owner and primary psychologist of Nest Psychological. You can find me on my website, www.nestpsychaz.com. Thank you, Sarah. And Laura, how can somebody get a hold of you if they're interested in, in hiring you as an advocate? Uh, they can go to my website, and that is www.azeducational.com advocate, A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E.com. There's an online uh, submission of information form if somebody wanted to ask me a question or, or give me their information, or they can also reach out to me at my email. And that is L-A-S-A-P-A-S-S-M-O-R-E at gmail.com. Thank you both. Um, I appreciate that. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can go to executivefunctioncoachaz.com. And while you're there, you can subscribe to our magazine, Executive Function Magazine. You can go to our YouTube channel 
and check out our videos as well as um, look at our testimonials or connect with me. Um, if you'd like a free consultation, uh, we'd love to hear from you um, and schedule that as well. So if you have questions and you'd like our, our um, future guests on the show to answer those questions for you, feel free to email those to me as well. And we will be back after these messages. If you are struggling with organization, time management, or other executive functions, Fazia Costi is ready to put you on the path to success. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Fozzie works with in-person clients at her Phoenix, Arizona office or with clients anywhere across the country remotely. Mention that you heard this ad from the Focus on Success radio show and receive a free initial consultation with Fozzie, plus $50 off an intake evaluation, a $300 value. Visit executivefunctioncoachaz.com or call 480-648-1122. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Focus on Success. To reach Fozzie Acosti or her guest on the live show, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Fazia at executive function coach az.com. Now, back to Focus on Success. Hi, welcome back. Uh, I'm Fazia Costi, and I would like to welcome Sarah Bald, Dr. Sarah Bald, and Laura Passmore to our wonderful Parenting Pulse today. And we are talking about special needs, and uh, Laura is educating us on the perspective of a parent, an educator, or an advocate dealing with special needs. So welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Yeah. And, and Sarah as well. Um, Sarah, do you have any questions that you would like to ask before I get started on my questions? I know you had one that you were talking about during our break. Yeah, I was talking about laziness and hardheadedness. We were talking about how, you know, Laura used that, that phrase or a similar phrase during the first part of the show. And I was like, at some point I want to touch on that because my biggest red flag when I have a family come to me is teachers describe them as lazy. Teachers describe them as hardheaded. Or I also get parents who are like, my kid's just lazy. That's his problem. Um, Kids are, everyone who regularly listens to the show, no, I say kids are inherently bad. Like they test boundaries. There's no like tolerance, blank slate. Like they're born naughty. But they they want to do well. They they want to please others. They want to be helpers, even though they test the boundaries. Like they still want to do well. So no kid is lazy and hard headed, unless they've had other trauma factors going on. But they might have developed that personality, or there's some sort of brain based disability that has driven what appears to be lazy and hard headedness. When reality, it's an attention deficit. It's a learning disability because sometimes they can do it once. Sometimes they can't do it. Um, so parents feel like, well, you did it once. So you should be able to do it over and over again. When a lot of these disabilities, sometimes you can do it for me. Sometimes you can't. 
Um, I don't know that there's a question in that, but that was definitely something that I'm like, I want to touch on this because this is really important for families to know. If a teacher is describing your kid as lazy, if you are describing your kid as lazy or hardheaded, yes, teenagers are lazy. Uh, but if they're hard-headed, they're stubborn, they've been that way since they were five years old, maybe we need to look at what else is happening if this child is struggling in school. I totally I, agree. Yeah. I, the, I'm so sorry. Oh, oh no, yeah, you're but, fine. I was just going to say, I agree as, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it, I, I found that, especially as kids get older in the, you know, the junior high years, say in elementary school, that there's there's talk of them being shut down and not trying and being defiant. And what, what I'll often see if we dig deeper is that that child is feeling frustrated and unsuccessful. So they're just avoiding it. Oh and gosh. So, Oppositional defiant disorder is significantly overdiagnosed. It it's is. A, it's an easy write-off of like my kid's defiant. So it must be oppositional defiant disorder. Were they paying attention? Were they frustrated? Were they having a big feeling? There's a lot of other things that it could be besides an oppositional defiant disorder. Well, anytime I see oppositional defiance disorder, I lean towards parenting because that's usually the issue. And usually that can be corrected with some counseling or some, you know, just some coaching. It's like here, if you, if you just change your parenting a little bit, you can adjust the outcome of how your child behaves. Like we but can't that's also actually why manage that. To, <laughs> yep. But that's also why it's good to take a multidisciplinary approach to our kids. And that's what's important in these, these MET meetings is because then my first thing is, oh my gosh, there's a disability. So it's like, yeah, there could be a parenting thing, but it could be a disability as well. So it's good to get all of these different professionals at the same table to talk about this kid and talk about like all of our hypotheses and to test them out and to challenge each other. That's, that's how we help kids be successful because we all come at it with different sure. lenses that we're viewing this child through. And well, usually I, right, but all of when us I have right. a parenting meeting with my students' parents and we usually, if we can adjust things with just shifting how they parent, we usually see results within like a week or two. And if we don't see results within a week or two, then I refer them on to a therapist because it's probably not a parenting issue at that point. It probably is a disability, but it's usually a quick fix if, if it is parenting, which I find well, fascinating. And I, I think sometimes parents don't know either, you know, that it could be sourced in something else, that there could be avoidance because of frustration with the assignment so that there's an right. academic reason that is causing the resistance or the avoidance, you know, yeah. I, I think. And it doesn't make them a bad that, parent. It does not. No. Make, and I, I want to make that really clear. It does not make them a bad parent. They've Shifting got a your parenting. kid to otherwise yes. perfect parenting. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree more. And I, I can say that almost every client of mine in our, in our initial two hour consult will tell me how much they should have done more of and probably the reason this is happening is because they didn't do this or what they did during pregnancy. And really big picture, there's, you know, releasing that guilt and realizing that we're all wired differently and some things are genetic and some aren't, but right. really big picture, the parents that come to me, they're never happy. They're always coming in worried, frustrated, needing support. Um, and, and oftentimes it's important to just remind them you're doing the best you can with the information you have. Keep getting information. 
Keep right. surrounding yourself with more uh, resources. Get an evaluation. Get the data. Mm-hmm. Get your roadmap. Then let's see what we can do with it. But with it being assumption or the tapes they've heard or what one teacher has said being how they define their child, parents will do better when they know better. I'm confident that I see it consistently. We all will in all areas of life. And this is no exception. You know, I had a the shoulds are my biggest pet peeve. (laughs) Like my favorite thing to say in my office is thou shalt not should on thyself, because that's really what you're doing is the um, connotation of that by saying should, because the shoulds are just going to undermine us every single step of the way. Well, you know, I have not seen a kid yet that came with a manual. Um, I wish there was one. I want one. Did you find one, Sarah? Did your sweet girl have a manual? My hospital sent me home with a full like binder of all the things I needed to know, and none of it applied to my child. (laughs) It was a nice effort. Good effort on their part. At least your child came with a manual. (laughs) Yeah, really, something to start from. You had a starting point, Sarah. <laughs> and none of it matched, and it was garbage. And I, I appreciated the social worker that took the time to put it together and was very proud of the work that she or he did, but like did not did not work. <laughs> Manuals are garbage. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> I had a client, uh, one of my very first clients. I, I remember I went to go see them and they had a child who was four years old at the time, and he had asynchronous development. And the mom said, I think I broke him. It's because he didn't come with a manual and I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) Oh, I love asynchronous development. That is one of my, I can talk for, I could do our whole show on just asynchronous development. Those kids are my jam. They're, they're tricky. We should do interesting puzzles. Yeah. 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 I I had, I had a couple of them. Really, I get yeah. A lot of them. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean a couple. I I, I raised, so oh, yeah. I, I get I get a lot of them in my work, but I, I, I had I've to raise one. one. I can see you raising one, but yes, <laughs> yes. I, I I'll send you. Uh, I I can send you a link. What my other one does? She has a whole list of articles she's written. Um, so she's uh, she's starting to make her own her own way as well. I love she, that. Her, yeah, she just doesn't like it when I talk about her. My oldest one doesn't mind. So I talk about her oh, really? all the time. She's like, oh, you can use me as an example. I'm fine with that. But my younger <laughs> one, she's like, no, <laughs> like, get out of this. <laughs> They're so different. They're all different. Yeah. So what are, what are some resources that you, you know, knowing what you know now, what are some resources that you would feel would be beneficial to parents who are just starting out in the, in, in this journey who maybe have a child with special needs and, and they don't really know where to go or how to get started. Well, I could speak to different agencies locally, but on a more global sort of, um, I guess, template, I would suggest talking with your child's teachers. If they're school age, requesting an evaluation, Talk with the teachers and open up the communication saying, I have some concerns. Will you tell me what you're seeing? If your child has all of their basic needs met, meaning there's no immediate situational cause for possible anxiety or distress, if there's a a death in the home, a divorce, a major illness, if all of those areas can be ruled out, their vision, their hearing ruled out, and they're struggling for any reason, 
I think it's worth starting to open that communication up with the teacher. What are you seeing at school? Here's what I'm seeing at home. Start to build that conversation. And then I suggest to ask for an evaluation, to request in writing an evaluation through the public school, because it is a right that parents. Why, and why in writing? That, that, please? <laughs> well, if it didn't happen in writing, it didn't happen. And Thank so you. basically, yes, if you ask for it, I've had a lot of parents say they told me they would three months ago and they never did. And so I found that, you know, we back up the conversation, say now put it in writing because there's a date stamp there. Put one other person on that email so that there is no chance that somebody can say they didn't receive it. So send an email with two people on it, preferably the school psychologist and the principal, even including the classroom teacher is always a good thing to keep everyone in the loop and request evaluation and, and inform them why. I have some concerns about my child. I don't see them, or I see them struggling with reading or I see them really anxious about coming to school. I have some concerns and I want more information. So I'm requesting a psychoeducational evaluation. And the next step is that the school will call you or email you and set up a red meeting, a review of existing data to look at what information we have, what do we need to know more about, and begin the eval process. And that will start the roadmap. That will start giving you some information, you know, once that, that, that eval report is generated to discuss as a team if that seems accurate or not. If you disagree with that information, say that does not sound right. For example, a child's doing really well in reading on that test, but they're doing horribly in math or they're coming in showing deficit in math. And that's not what you see at home. And that's not what they presented with the year before. It's okay to say, I disagree with the results and put in writing. And therefore I'm requesting an IEE, independent educational evaluation. And that's where you have a pediatric neuropsychologist or a psychologist outside of the school setting that will do basically like a second opinion. They'll do another eval with more information. This is more Sarah's realm. And then you get to compare that data and look at more of the underpinnings and see what's really going on, then construct the plan. I think it's vitally important to build that communication positively with the school staff and also to tap into an online community, start talking to other parents. I think that in my experience, had I started talking and I, and I know what I'm doing in education for the most part, I'm always growing and learning, but even with my own son, had I started talking with other parents sooner, I would have learned more sooner. And I find that most parents trust other parents for referrals and resources. And those that have already carved the path can share more, but so many parents keep it in their home because they think they must be doing something wrong or their child has problems that they don't want to share. It's not something they're bragging about. So, yeah. so my encouragement is talk to other people, get online and talk to get into There are groups for everything from autism to dyslexia to speech delays. And you could talk to parents right there. Where's the best place for therapy? Who do you think I should have to the evaluation for sensory processing disorder? And parents teach parents in that way, oftentimes very well. Some people, I am so sorry, uh, some people also will consult with their pediatrician. That's another place where you can go and get information. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's a really important thing is going to your pediatrician, going to psychologists, calling other, uh, other parents that you know, and maybe even going onto Facebook and finding those groups and being able to really... Um, 
expand your knowledge and, and learn more about what needs to be done. Learning through others, learning what they're doing, I think really helps um, create a plan for you as a parent. Um, Sarah, what about you? Do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think consulting with educational advocates is really important um, wherever you are located, because I know we have worldwide listeners. They're, you know, doing your research, calling and consulting with mm-hmm. advocates is really important. I'm very personable. So I love Laura because she and I can can be personable and I can call her and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And she'll tell me. Um, we did that earlier today where I was like, please tell me what you think about this. Um, yeah, I love that. You want to call, you want to have an advocate where you feel like they understand you, they understand your experience, and they're willing to listen to your experience. Same with psychologists. You want to make sure you have someone who's willing to listen to you because relationship is everything. Mm -hmm. Just like in the schools with your psychologists, with your advocates, you want to make sure the relationship is there. Um, I really like the website understood.org. It's very basic information about IEPs, 504 plans, advocacy. It's a good jumping off point for parents when you really feel like the school is not hearing you, is not seeing you as a parent, stepping into that advocacy realm because it does. Like, I don't know Laura's experience, but when you mention advocacy, everyone's kind of... That they all lose their breath for a second because it it takes that next step of oh no there's an advocate involved. You can definitely yeah, consult. It's getting with them. serious now. <laughs> yeah, you can consult with them. Try the meeting yourself. Understood. Offers that, but I think you learn so much more by working with a professional who understands the school. Even in psychology, I've run into many cases where psychologists will recommend what the research shows is best for a child. That is not physically possible by the red tape the school is under. So you'll get psychologists who make recommendations. So you might get a great evaluation. You know, our joke in this, when I was an intern in the school psych was, well, you might get a neuropsych who recommends dolphin therapy, but dolphin therapy is not realistic. So we're (laughs) not obligated to recommend dolphin therapy. Um, really extreme example, but you want to make sure you work with a number of professionals who understand the school system. And if you choose an evaluator who you trust, who doesn't know the schools, that's okay. But working with other individuals who also recommend or who also know that school system is incredibly important. So you know what is realistic and what isn't realistic when you're coming into these meetings. No, I think much like a... Much like a therapist, you know, I think it's okay to go and find the right advocate for you. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I called it therapy shopping the other day. Um, it's okay to go advocate shopping as well. You know, find the right one for you. And it I'm is. Sorry, and relationship is everything. Yeah. Well, it is. And, and I was just going to, you know, go along with what you were saying, Sarah, and that, that trust piece is so critical. You know, I, I always tell my clients, I have time to be, I only have time to be totally transparent with you. And likewise, I need the same from you. We don't have time to to get there, get there on what you really feel or what you really see. So we start with a two hour consultation. And in that time together in person, there's question answer, there's I'm extracting information from a binder they create. And I won't sit down for that consultation 
until I also feel like that's a fit on the phone. So I'll usually spend about a half an hour on the phone with a parent who's calling me. They said, oh, you were referred to me by so-and-so, or I found your name online. I read your reviews. So I always ask, how did you find me? And when we have that initial conversation, I say, give me a nutshell of what's going on and how you think I might be able to help you. And I'll listen to them first. And I need to make sure that we can work together too, because it's not worth my time or their money if we are not going to jive or if I can't trust them either. Uh, you know, there's there's that working relationship where we have to come in united and we are team Josh or team Sam coming in. We are united wearing two different important hats in that meeting. And I am not as emotional when it's not my own. So I can keep my um, more goal-oriented, I, I guess, uh, momentum in that meeting where I'm moving things along. I am trying to create efficiency, creativity. Here is what we can do. Okay, let's try this. Let's work together. Parents have said this up, up, hold on. We need parent input in that IEP. You know, I'm trying to move it along from my angle, knowing what that parent is afforded for their child. And the parent is the only one who can sit in that seat and do the best job there because they know their child best. So we've got to have a partnership. I've had in the last nine years, I've had two meetings where it's gone entirely sideways at, with the school after we had a great consult that we're on the same page. But parent number two shows up for the meeting in the school and they decide that they disagree with parent number one. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there trying to navigate and eventually I cannot go against either parent. So right. I have to let them work it out. So we have that conversation now too about whether or not you and your, you know, the other parent are in agreement about this or mm -hmm. not, because I can't help them if they're not. So, so that trust, that relationship, kind of feeling each other out for a good handshake before we move into that high stakes setting is very important all around. Yes. And, and, and absolutely uh, interviewing and going along with that too, because what I've noticed, I'm going to plug Laura for a second. What I've noticed about her is I've been in meetings with her where the director of special education tells me afterwards, I really like her. I like working with her because again, you want that relationship. The bulldogs serve a purpose where they're just coming in and they're being bossy, but you really want someone and you want to feel like you have an advocate. If you go that route, who is going to help rebuild that relationship with the school. Cause that speaks volumes. That speaks so much more. That's going to get you so much further in the schools. than we're just going to boss them around and threaten them until we get our way. Thank you, okay. sir. I, I agree. And, I, and when I mentioned yeah. that bulldog, that's, that's the last step. That's the don't force my hand piece. Yeah. Uh, there's so much more that can come before that. And usually does help serve the child better. Well, it sounds like, you know, when it's not your child, you can be more level-headed um, because the emotions aren't there. And it sounds like you've had all three of those hats on at one point, you know, you've been the educator, you've been the advocate, you've been the parent. So you can walk in there knowing what they all need. And so you're the best negotiator. You've worn all three hats. Well, and I, I, and you're I negotiating for the student. Yeah. You're negotiating for the student who's your client. So you know what they can all do. You know what they can all offer. You know what's on the table. And I think that's what makes you a good advocate. 
Well, thank you. That's the goal really is to build bridges and to have that child in the center of the table, theoretically. If we can build bridges with the resources and all involved, then everybody feels like a team member and they're more invested in the process. If anybody is put on their heels in that meeting, that's when you start to see the ego and you know other things yeah. come in. There's no need for that when you're talking about kids. So really try for the diplomacy. I think that has a lot more, a lot more positive impact. Well, we have about four minutes before we, we end our time together. And I just wanted to ask you, is there any last, uh, last minute advice that uh, either one of you would like to give parents um, who are dealing with special needs child? I, I would love to share that I learned that what's originally and initially seen as a deficit uh, and there's so much fear around that as parents, if we perceive our child having a weakness that might hurt them in life or that life will be less kind to them because of uh, what I've learned is there are a lot of silver linings to the different types of uniqueness. For example, uh, kiddos that are dyslexic, I've seen oftentimes they have such keen social awareness. They're very adept at picking up on social cues and, and their social skills are oftentimes quite strong because they have to rely on that. creative. And they have to be. And so that's that's one of the silver linings of most dyslexic learners that I've worked with or a child on a spectrum. I'm going to tell you that I can always get the truth. No one's going to sugarcoat for a child who's very literal. They're going to tell me exactly how they feel. <laughs> that's another silver lining. I don't have that in every area. Um, you know, a, a kiddo who's got executive functioning deficits, well, I can do yoga, breath work, and light candles, but it's hard for me to get present and to be present. And a kiddo with ADHD, at least mine and many that I work with, they're pretty present. And that is a gift also. So it, I think that once we can learn to appreciate the uniqueness and plug in appropriate supports for our kids, that our kids can thrive and do well. We just need to surround ourselves with tools and resources and people who know more than us and want to help. And I think there's a lot more potential sometimes than parents realize for, you know, children to thrive even after the roadmap provides a diagnosis that can really just be the ticket for more support. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate that. Sarah, did you have anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I just want to piggyback off of going to other parents for support. You know, one of my one of my all-time favorite books is Brené Brown. I know, classic. Um, but her I thought it was just me, but it wasn't. Because what I talk about constantly is that Facebook shame. So we put our best foot forward. We always pretend like everything's okay, but we struggle. Parenting is hard. Being a parent is next to impossible. Yeah, we all figure out how to do it. So connecting with others, joining the Facebook groups, you can post anonymously, you can ask questions, you can private message people, um, helping connect with others is incredibly important or connecting with others is incredibly important because you want to have the relationships, you want to have a communities that you feel supported with, and that includes your providers. You want to make sure you have providers that you feel are supportive. Doctor shopping. Um, <laughs> I mean, don't go through the entire process with a doctor and then choose someone that, you know, oh, I didn't like that. I'm going to go with someone else. But calling around, getting opinions, chatting with providers, seeing who's willing to even speak with you as a provider, as an advocate, you know, making sure you choose that 
provider up front that you feel like really gets you and is going to be on your team and it's going to lay things out for you realistically. They're going to make recommendations that are appropriate. They're going to make diagnoses that are appropriate. They're going to really listen to you, but also have your child's interest in mind, that child-centered. You want to find people who are child-centered to surround yourself by. Um, And not being afraid to, to ask. Well, thank you so much, ladies. And Sarah, would you like to give your contact information one more time? Absolutely. So I am Dr. Sarah Bald. I'm the owner of Nest Psychological. You can find me on my website at www.nestnestpsychaz, so nestpsychologicalarizona.com. And Laura, would you like to give out your email one more time if somebody was interested in contacting you? Yes, absolutely. It is my my webpage is www.azeducationaladvocate.com. And if I could just say one more thing, it's that the consistent message I found from parents that I wish they knew earlier is to trust their gut because 90% of them say, I knew something, I knew something was up. So I think there's a lot to be said for that trust, not just in others, but to trust themselves too. All right. Thank you so much, ladies. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can go to my website, executivefunctioncoachaz.com. And you can email me or call me for a um, free consultation. And once again, we want to thank you for listening. Without you, this show would not be possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program next Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.